Hey there, and welcome to Inside Intercom. This week, we're taking a look at the role of storytelling in the business world. And if that sounds familiar, it's because we've talked about it in the context of product design and marketing before. You can hear more about that in conversations with Sequoia Capital's James Buckhouse and Intercom's longtime marketing leader, Matt Hodges. This week, we're applying a little bit of a different lens to this. Specifically, we're looking at why storytelling isn't just a tool used by great designers and great marketers, but also by every truly great salesperson. Joining me in the studio to explain why that is and how to apply this art to your sales process is Doug Landis. Doug spent over a decade driving sales productivity and efficiency inside some of the world's top tech companies, names like Google, Salesforce, and Box. At the latter stop, Doug moved from VP of sales productivity into a brand new role, one he had to personally pitch CEO Aaron Levy on creating in the first place. That title was Chief Storyteller, and the lofty aim there was to transform how Box sales reps talk to and about their customers. Today, Doug is a growth partner at Emergence Capital. There, he tries to capture, create, and share go-to-market strategies and ideas with both portfolio companies and the greater SaaS community. So telling a great story is still very core to his job. My chat with Doug, we cover why storytelling and sales go hand in hand. The reality is, is your job is to build credibility. And how do you do that? You use the voice of your customers and you, you use what you've learned over time and the stories that you've heard about your customers and where they were and where are they now. And you use that contrast to help paint a picture of what's possible because that's what people buy into. The puzzle pieces that every great sales story shares. We speak our own speak, right? We drink our own champagne, eat our own dog food, whatever it is. Our customers don't get it. So using analogies and metaphors is a really interesting way to actually help make complex things actually sound simple. And a few key stories that every salesperson needs to know, like the back of their hand. Your company story, your personal story, and then a customer story. Those are the tools that you have. If you enjoy my chat with Doug and you want more insights like these, I've got two different places to point you. For more on what it takes to grow a company, check out our newest book, The Growth Handbook. It's available for free at intercom.com forward slash books. And for more one-to-one conversations with leaders in product, sales, marketing, design, and more, like this one, check out our full library of Inside Intercom episodes. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, you name it. And now, let's hop in the studio and talk storytelling with Doug Landis. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Doug, welcome to Inside Intercom. Thanks for coming Thank to the office you. today. This is fun. I like this little padded cell that we're in. <laughs> is the fluorescent light isn't too much for you? No, no, that's why I'm wearing a hat. <laughs> um, just to get us started, for any of our listeners who aren't as familiar with, with your work, can you give us a rundown of your career today, where you've stopped, and what brought you to uh, Emergence Capital? Yeah, no worries. Um, and thank you for having me. Um, I think you guys are doing some great things, and it's it's really, really exciting to see how you guys are growing over, over time. So for everybody that doesn't know me, my name is Doug Landis. I am a growth partner at Emergence Capital. A little context of what that is. My primary focus, I'm on the investment committee. I help to source deals and do deals and due diligence on deals. But primarily when we invest in a company, then I step in roll up my sleeves, get my hands dirty, and help them figure out how they're going to grow from a million or two million in ARR to 10 million to 50 to 100, right? Um, and ultimately an IPO or, or a significant exit. At the end of the day, I kind of like to think of it as like I'm go-to-market consulting. Okay, cool. Um, but I'm super tactical. I'm not just going to sit in an ivory tower and go, oh, did you th- what, you know, what's your MQL conversion rate? No, no, it's like... <laughs> 
what is your MQL conversion rate and why is it not higher? Right. Right. And then what are our reps doing as soon as they actually get an MQL? What's that first touch point? And how are they engaging with their customers? How are they running their meetings? And how do we know who we're targeting and their willingness to buy? So I get super in the weeds, build sales playbooks and sales process and all that other fun stuff. Yeah. Is it, how do you establish rapport with it with a new company once you invest? And I guess a step back to you guys are looking mostly at Series A, Series B companies. Right? Yeah. 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 So a little background um, on Emergence. We are hyper-focused on B2B enterprise SaaS companies. You know, it's really interesting that I've learned because I've only been on this side of the table for yeah. about a year and a half, but we're we're in the people business, if you think about it, because we only do Series A and Series B stage investments. So if you have a company that you want to talk to us about, shoot me a note. I'm just <laughs> Doug at MCAP.com. Um, but the reality is, is we fundamentally want to invest in people that are changing the future of work, yeah. right? With a focus of SaaS being your vehicle, right, and B2B being your focus. We're not into B2C. We're not in IoT. We're not in health tech. We're, we're, we're hyper-focused. And that's, that's I think, what's that's, – that's, that's by design. I mean, that's, that's it, kind of what separates your yeah. team, right? Yeah, we're hyper-focused, and it's also what allowed me to step into this role after being an operator for the last 20 years and continue to be able to do what I love doing, which is helping startups figure out how to build, yeah. how to grow. Right. And so sort of talking a little bit about your background as an operator, then you were at Salesforce for a while. Uh, you then went to Box and, and had a few roles there. What, what was your progression like as you sort of meandered and grew those companies? Yeah, yeah. Well, so look, at the end of the day, I'm a salesperson at heart. I have been my whole life since I was a little kid. My whole family's in sales. I literally eat, think, drink, breathe, sleep, sales. And I'm constantly thinking about how do we help salespeople get smarter, better, faster, right? It's not really a profession that you can study in college. I mean, there's what, as, as my good buddy John Barrows and I talk about, there's maybe, what, 20, 25 schools that actually yeah. have degrees in sales. You have to learn by doing. Yeah, you, you do. And, you know, the reality is, is everyone needs a shot, right, to determine whether or not it's something you really like or you really want to do. So I started my career in sales. Um, I worked at Oracle in the early days where, you know, we really learned discipline. You know, we were making 100 calls a day. And if we were below that, we were below the line. We were on the chopping block, right? But, you know, kind of building the foundational elements of what it takes to be a great salesperson um, for me started, I think, just when I was a little kid. But then, again, went to Oracle and then actually left and then I started my own technology company. And that was a really... It was a, it was very eye opening to really understand what it takes to actually build a company. Yeah, you must call um, back on that now a lot with the companies you're working uh, a with. A ton. Yeah, right. You know, look, building a company is kind of about pattern recognition, right? It's like, do you have the right market, or do you have the right go to market strategy? Do you have the right product? Do people want to pay for it? And it was interesting because after I started that company and that kind of the dot com boom, mm -hmm. if you will, the first one <laughs> in the early days, um, the late '90s. I then had to do an assessment after we shut it down. We ran out of capital. We had raised three rounds of funding, and I shut it down, and I was like, well, now what am I going to do? I can go back into sales. And that's one beautiful thing about selling. You can always go back into selling. If you're good, it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what you have The mediums might change. You might be off the phone and on a messenger, but totally. a lot of these skills translate. Exactly. Yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah, it's actually it's a really good analogy there. But what I realized is I get way more value out of helping other salespeople figure out how to tap into their full potential. And then, so then I went to go work for uh, Google, running sales, productivity sales training development, mm -hmm. if you will. Went to Salesforce after that. And that's where we coined the term sales productivity. Yeah. It didn't exist 15 years ago now. And we built that function out to be, I think when I left, there was about 80 people hyper-focused on how do we make our salespeople smarter, better, faster at what they do. And then from there, after five years there, I went to Box, did a Box, and then and then got the opportunity to jump ship. What, what was it about um, Box at the time that that made you make that jump from Salesforce, which must have been a pretty comfortable position, I imagine. Totally. Was it just that it, yeah. you sort of felt like the 
engine was running so well that you needed a new challenge? What yeah. was it? Uh, it's very difficult to leave the mothership. <laughs> I call it Salesforce, which everybody has some degree. It's one degree of connection around here, right? But two, I'd say two reasons. Number one, Aaron Levy is really impressive. Uh, my first meeting with him, I was like, right after meeting with him, I said, I want to work for that guy. Yeah. Like he's just, his mind works in a way that not many people um, have the opportunity to be around, right? And so I got to work directly with him uh, and for him to a degree. And then the other thing was I got to build it from scratch. Like there was two people that were kind of doing it. They were former AEs that um, they needed some direction. And, and so it was kind of like rinse and repeat, build a playbook. Uh, and it was great. It was so fun. Yeah, and, and your your last role there, I think, is particularly interesting in that I'm pretty sure you invented it out of thin air metaphorically. Obviously, there was a need, but your last title there, I believe, was Chief Storyteller, yes. which, what the hell does that mean in, in a sales environment? <laughs> what, know, what, was, what was the need for it? Why did you have to pitch this to Aaron? So there's there's kind of three parts to it, right? So the first thing is, look, in the world of sales, the best salespeople in the world are incredible storytellers. Like, if you think about it, if you unpack that at the end of the day, it's how we all talk to one another, right? We tell stories, right? I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell my wife about, like, my story, the story of my day and what I learned in this whole experience, right? It's just that's how we communicate. And yet then we get to work and we start speaking in, like, in bullets and phrases and, like, jargon in a jargon. And, and it's like it makes no sense, right? And so the challenge really is – so that's kind of one part. The second part is – when you have a really prolific leader like an Aaron Levy or a Mark Benioff or um, you know the, the Larry and Sergey, you've got people that are incredibly intelligent. They're speaking at forty thousand feet yeah. about how to transform something or disrupt an industry that people can't really grasp. And the idea is, how do you take those ideas and turn that into something? a bit more um, transactional, right? right? The, the, tangible. Like, how do I take Aaron's message and actually tell that to a customer that doesn't really get it because they're in Kansas? And to do that confidently, I'm sure, because Aaron has this level of credibility that, Absolutely. let's just say, I'm a frontline account manager. I don't have, frankly. And, and that's the reality, right? So nobody in the company other than the founder CEO actually has any level of credibility unless you've been in the industry for 20 some odd years and you're a known entity. But if you're in sales, you're you're Unfortunately, you're at the bottom of the uh, the barrel, right? Um, let's just face it, especially if you've got sales in your title, which is terrible. Get rid of it. It's my first suggestion. But the reality is, is your job is to build credibility. And how do you do that? You use the voice of your customers and you, you use what you've learned over time to and the stories that you've heard about your customers and where they were and, and where are they now. And you use that contrast to help paint a picture of what's possible mm -hmm. because that's what people buy into. And right. so you're saying it's, it's not just how you talk to your customers and present the story of the problem you're solving, but how you talk about your customers who have found success with it as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Totally. So one of the things, so the chief storyteller role came out of the fact that, one, at the time we didn't have a CMO. At the time we had a bunch of what I call Frankenstein decks because we had multiple products, right? And so head of security is building one deck, head of platforms is building another deck, core is building another deck, you know, our customer success team is building another deck. And then my job is to pull it all together and go present it to a customer. There's no cohesion, there's no consistency, right? And there's no, and it's all about us. It's incredibly and remarkably self-serving. And what I, what I realized was, People just didn't have the tools to go turn it all upside down and change the voice that we were using. And, and what and the other thing is really interesting is customer success is the most 
underutilized and undervalued function in any organization. And in fact, my good buddy, Mark Roberge always talks about how like in the early days, hire more customer success folks than salespeople. And how are you, how are you defining customer success in this specific context? Because yeah. it can be very loosely. Totally. Contact. It can be architects. <laughs> it can be, you know, professional services. In this case, it's customer success managers that are looking to determine, you know, to ensure that you're implemented correctly and your adoption level is high and that there's potential expansion, right? They build those relationships and they really understand how the customer is using the product, yeah. what I call like the last 20 yards, right? And that's the truth, how they're actually getting real value out of it. And let's capture those little nuggets of insight and share that back with marketing and share that back with the sales team and get them to utilize that in their conversations. And so that was the fundamental goal of this chief storyteller role. Um, it was to try and how do we capture those customer stories in a way that were much more useful and usable across every domain of products that we had. So. All right, take us back to, to, your, to your office in those days. You have just walked out of the room with Aaron. He has officially said, accepted the pitch. This is your new role. Right. Go, go and do it. What do you do next? Like, what are some yeah. of the tangible things that you could do to actually create change in how Box told stories? I, I asked myself that very same question. I'm like, oh, now what do I do? <laughs> now you have to do um, yeah, now I'm going to go do something. You know, and I think that's probably was the hardest part was I didn't want to just go sit and write customer stories, yeah. although I ended up doing that. And, and, and the difference was so many people write their customer stories of like, here's the problem. You know, here's their challenge. Here's how we solved it. Here's their ROI. Yeah. That doesn't mean shit. A salesperson, all, you know, all they're going to do is, again, state a bunch of facts, right, of bullets. Yeah. The reality is I want to know kind of – I want to know the glue. I want to know who that person was. I want to know what they were really struggling with. I want to know how their world could have been different if they had just opened their eyes or thought about or approached it differently. So I, I, a couple of things I did. I went and met with everybody in customer success to try and extrapolate the best stories possible. And then I took those and I, I tried to reorient those and give those back to marketing and say, we need to incorporate these. If you're the head of security and you're building your security deck for our reps to use, we need to reorient that and make sure that we're using the voice of our customers and these little tiny stories into that, right? Because the reality is, is our job is to help our customers identify problems that they haven't quite considered. And we're going to pull those problems out of our existing customers. And so the whole goal was, how do we pull those out of our customers and then share those internally, both with marketing and with the sales team, so that it reorients our conversation? And then lastly, probably most importantly, was just rewriting our whole first call deck. I guarantee you, if you look at everyone's, it might even yours, uh, maybe not. <laughs> no but, comment. <laughs> uh, but if you look at it, the, probably the first slide is like, okay, here's who we are. And then the second slide is, okay, here are all our customers. And then the third slide is, you know, here's the problem that we're trying to solve, right? And it's like there's... And you probably like, already lost who you're presenting to by the time you get through those three slides. Because so the first three, four slides yeah. <laughs> is all about you, right? The customers want to know about them. And the only way that they can compare themselves is if you give them insight into other people just like them. Right. So first slide should be like, hey, listen, we, this is what we've learned from our customers who we feel like are pretty similar to you. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, is while you may think that this is your fundamental problem, the reality is you might, it's a very important word, you might have problem two, three, four and five. And if you don't have those problems now, it's quite possible you're going to have those down the road. And so if you think that's possible, then let's dig into what those problems could fundamentally mean to you and how to think about solving those. 
Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. You mentioned finding new ways to sort of share these internally, particularly with marketing. And I'm I'm curious how that went and how you were able to develop some consistency there because marketing typically is for speaking to the masses, right? Yeah, 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 totally. So one, you have to create a template, if you will, for marketing that reorients the way in which they build decks, right? Because again, especially product marketing, and this is no offense to anybody in marketing, but product marketing, you're like, your job is to translate from the product managers what the product is all about and the value that it delivers and the ROI that you know you can hopefully deliver by yep. using this product. But what you, what's missing in all of that is the customers, right? So at the end of the day, you're solving, your product is solving a particular problem, but how, do, how have we validated that? And is your product actually solving more than just one problem? Most likely it is, but do we talk about that? Yeah. Right? Because our goal is, again, to get our customers to look at us and go, huh, I hadn't quite considered that. And the moment you get that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a, a phrase that Chris Voss, who's the, one of the best negotiators, former CIA negotiator for 25 years. He did hostage negotiation. Um, he wrote a book. Uh, I can't remember what it's called, but just look him up, Chris yep. Voss. But one of the things he gets you to think about in the world of negotiation is not to get somebody to say yes, but to get them to say that's right. Because the moment they say that, you now have proof that you've built enough empathy and you've demonstrated your level of understanding of them. And the moment that happens, now you've got them. So, so to get to that point, what, are, what do you see as the cornerstones of a really strong, compelling story? Then I don't just mean like beginning, middle, and end, but like what elements have to be there to get the person who's receiving this to that point? Contrast. Contrast is contrast is one of the most powerful vehicles for storytelling, right? It is where are you today? Where could you be tomorrow? It's like what do you have versus what could you have? Old way, new way. That old kind of way, thing. new way. It's all about contrast, mm-hmm. and then and it's not just contrast by like me telling you about contrast, but it's me using examples, right? Because me telling you is not necessarily all that believable. If I got it right, then maybe it's a little bit more believable. <laughs> but in many cases, we're kind of guessing because we don't know exactly what's going on with our customers. We're kind of guessing. Or the context that they're in. Right, right. Timing, relevance, yep. everything else, right? And so contrast is a really, really important vehicle. Um, analogies, another really important vehicle. We speak our own speak 
right? We drink our own champagne, eat our own dog food, whatever it is. Our customers don't get it. So using analogies and metaphors is a really interesting way to actually help make complex things actually sound simple. Um, is that then, sort of like the you're the Airbnb for X or the Uber for Y yeah, kind of thing, yeah, or deeper yeah, than that? Uh, deeper than yeah. that. I mean, that's super surface level. But you know, analogies, and of course, now I can't think of a <laughs> single one off the cuff. But, but, but in the context of what it is you're t- trying to talk about, right? So, you know, if you think about, let's use box as an example, okay. and you think of like box for many people is just like, you know, sink and share, file storage, right? It's like, yeah, okay, that's. That's true. There, there is some truth to that, but it's so much more. Right. So how do you get somebody to understand that it's more when their own point of view is just like, no, it's just storage, and storage is cheap, so why the yeah. hell am I going to pay $35, <laughs> right? So you got to reorient their thinking, and, and an analogy is a really, really good way. Of course, now I can't think of one right now. I will do so by the time we end, but, but that's a really interesting way to get them to go, oh, okay, there's, there's more. Um, the other thing, of course, in, in storytelling is you have to have some sort of structure, um, and, you know, we all think of beginning, middle, and end, but at the end of the day, it's just people don't want to know that you're rambling. Like, yeah. when is this going to end? Where are we going with this, right? You ever heard somebody tell a story, like you're hanging out at a bar or whatever, and someone's telling a story, and you're like, okay. And... Hanging out at a bar, or sometimes hanging out in here. <laughs> or, yeah, or, yeah, at the office, and you're like, uh, okay, um, where are we going with this? When is this going to be over? I, if there's structure to the story, then it's easier to understand where we are, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, of course, some sort of emotion. You got to have that emotion, which is why we're using more adverbs, right? We're using descriptive language to talk about what's really going on versus facts and statements. Mm -hmm. By the way, the other thing that's really important is facts. The number one thing is when you state a fact, the first thing that we do by default as human beings is we want to argue that against that fact. We don't believe it. You tell me a fact, I'm like, all right, where's your proof? Like, yeah. I don't, like, What's the source? <laughs> yeah, especially if you're in sales. What's the sample size? Yep. Yeah, totally. If you're in sales, you automatically, I'm already defensive, and then you throw out a fact. I'm like, well, how, how do I know that's true? Right? So it's be, be really mindful about just using more emotion versus mm-hmm. facts. Facts you can use to back up the story that you just told. It's a great little one-two punch. And I know delivery is, is a huge part of this as well. Were there certain exercises that you were able to take the team through to just help get them comfortable with this? So, I mean, the best vehicle is find your best storytellers in the company and give them the stories to tell and have them just articulate their version of it. Mm-hmm. So there's no right or wrong necessarily. It's it's how it's communicated and if it's believable, Yeah. right? I will say that I am a professionally trained actor. I started acting when I was a little kid. I used to do theater, and then I graduated from Gene Shelton's Actors Lab here in San Francisco. And if you think about what acting is all about, It's the same thing as presenting, which is even if you're presenting over Zoom or intercom, as a matter of fact, um, or email or whatever it is, when you're trying to communicate, your job, your fundamental job is to try and elicit a positive response from the other person. So if that is my goal, then how do I need to communicate to you in order to get that response, right? Because it's going to be different. If I'm talking to a CFO, the way in which I may communicate or tell that story may be very different than I'm I'm talking to a head of sales. (laughs) Right. So tonality, like, you know, the words that you use, you know, how you use data in your story varies kind of depending on. It sounds like you should be very comfortable iterating on this, really, is what it comes out to. Absolutely. Yeah. And people need examples. Right. People just need examples. And because it's it's a new way of thinking in the business world. Are there other brands out there that you think do this really well? 
Uh, I mean, I hate to say this, but Salesforce is one of the best, right? They really are. I mean, Mark is a marketing genius, which is also why CMOs don't necessarily <laughs> last there very long, because he's basically the head of marketing, if you think about it. But like, they've just done a remarkable job of telling the stories of their customers. Every Dreamforce, the number one thing that's highlighted across the entire conference, their customers, mm -hmm. right? I mean, look at they're a customer-centric company. That's what they do. Yeah. And if you just think about it and read through their stories, you're good. Just walk around Dreamforce. It's all over the place, right? And so, take note of that. Take note of that. It's a it's a different way of approaching how to engage with people. So I think a lot of our listeners are probably in the the place where they are one of the very first sales hires at their company. Um, they're being given that sort of forty thousand foot high story from their founder. What's the first step they can take to to translate that into that more relatable, cohesive product that you keep talking about? Yeah, yeah. Well, so the way I think about it is, look, if you're a founder seller, or if you are the number, the first seller in the organization, or you got there's three or four of you, you need to own. And when I mean own, like you got to know these cold three stories: why your company exists. That's that founder story, like why he built the company. You know, what problem did they find? What was their what, experience? What pain were they feeling? Yeah, yeah exactly. totally. What, like, and what was that aha moment, right? So why the company exists, why you personally work there, because that's important, right? People want to believe, look, 57% of the buyers making a decision has to do with a sales experience. And that sales experience means you're, you have some level of empathy and understanding of who you're talking to. And part of doing that is like sharing your own personal story, right? And building that connection and that relationship. So your company story, your personal story, and then a customer story. Those are the tools that you have. And what typically you're given when you first join a company, if you're the first salesperson, is the why company story, right? And so you need to develop your own why personal story. And then you need to develop what I call your own personal aha moment. So use the product, get to know the product just intimately well so that you can go, oh, well, shit, I get it. I get it. Like, <laughs> yeah. I totally get it. I get why this is so meaningful to our customers. And this is the one of the, the key moment I need to make sure to bring forward sort of at the, the arc of my story. Yes, absolutely. So, so fast forwarding to today at, at Emergence a little bit, um, is this one of the key elements that you're still coaching a lot of the portfolio companies on? What, what types of problems <laughs> are, you, are you solving for them most frequently? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I, 100%. We get into storytelling. In fact, one of the first things that I do when I meet with a new company that we're, we've invested in is I'm, I say, send me your first call deck. Send me your deck that you use on all of your sales calls. I don't care what role you have in the company. If you're the head of marketing, you're, you're the first AE, you're the head of sales, or even the CEO. I'm like, send me what you use. We're going to rebuild it. We're going to redo it because I guarantee you it's going to fall on the old same trap, which is, okay, here's who we are and here are our customers. Yep. And here's how much <laughs> In the early days, it's like, here's how much money we raise. Here are our founder. You know, here are our backers. And that doesn't really mean anything, right? You got to build the, they got to give them, you have to earn the right to actually share that information yeah. because up until then, they don't really give a shit. You know, it, in the world of, you know, early stage investments uh, or investing, we're in the business of pattern recognition, right? And so Series A and Series B stage companies all kind of struggle with the same things, especially if these are technical founder led companies mm -hmm. and they've just recently made their first one or two hires. The reality is this, we need to, we dig into everything from like, who do we sell to and why? How do we know that those are the right buyers for who's our the, Who's our ideal customer who's not ready for exactly. the product? I know, are, are we trying to f go upstream too quickly? Oh, well, it's gotta be, I imagine it's got to be hard for a lot of these, particularly the technical founders who aren't used to selling to, to know that maybe that logo isn't the right whale to chase at that yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, and part of it is we, we get them to think about, well, do we, are we resourced? 
Like, what if you signed up a Procter and Gamble and they had fifty thousand people using your product all at once, and they had a problem or there was a bug? Or by the way, they need a couple features that really aren't on your roadmap. Right, totally. How do you respond to them? Do you have enough people in customer support or customer success to make sure that they're wildly successful, or to make sure that their their pains are fixed if there's an issue? Right. And then, of course, do you have the infrastructure to actually support that many people yeah. on the product? Like, a whole bunch of, of usability questions, right, and company questions. But reality is, like, who do we sell to? How do we know that they're the right customers? What's their propensity to buy? And what's their willingness to pay? Two different factors, by the way. Yeah. I may want to buy this because it seems interesting. I don't have any money for it. Hey, you don't have any money for it? Screw it. I don't want to Until someone writes a check, that's, that's where the rubber meets the road. Right. It, it's all play money hypothetical until totally, then. Totally. Uh, our, our friends over at uh, Patrick Campbell over at Price Intelligently uh, always talks about this willingness to pay component that a lot of people neglect, right? And so we really need to get into our customers that are existing customers today and how do we make them wildly successful and how do we know about their willingness to pay continually, right? How How is this a must-have versus a nice-to-have? It's a really, really important we, question that we dig into in the early, early days, right? And then we get into buyer personas, and then we get into hiring plans and hiring strategies and sales operating models. And, and probably, I'm sure, like testing upper bounds of pricing and just experimenting with how much you can get these people to pay, totally. what, what, how to put the right value on it, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And that's always an interesting balance because in the beginning, you maybe you charge a little less than what you think you can, you can get. And then all of a sudden you're just like, oh, I think it's we need to raise our prices. And it's like, well, hold on. Do you know that? Have you yeah. tested it out that people actually are willing to pay that much? Or are you going to find yourself in a situation at Box? I think in the early days, you know, we were selling our enterprise product for like $35 a user per month. But when we were selling to enterprises in the very early days, we were selling it for $5, right? It's costing LinkedIn the equivalent of a cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah, right. It, yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. Now, now, now they're definitely earning right. the $35. But in the very, very, very beginning, it was core, you know, storage, if you will, if you can argue that. Um, or like, it's not really worth $35. Yeah. And so it's finding that that happy medium. So you, you mentioned a lot of it being pattern recognition. What are the sorts of things that you and your team are doing to, to, to democratize knowledge across the companies? Because I'm sure they're, they are dealing with a lot of the same problems. Are, are you able to sort of create resources for a lot of these things? Yeah, yeah. That's a big part of what we mm -hmm. do. Um, myself and a, another partner, Viviana Faga, who who came, she was a CMO at Zenefits, was the head of marketing at Platfora and Salesforce uh, in the early days. And, you know, the two of us look at like building models. We want to make this repeatable, right? So for example, I, I took Mark Robert's book, The Sales Acceleration Formula, and I turned that into a model, a hiring model, right? Which is, if you're going to hire at scale, how do you identify the characteristics that you're really looking for? How do you interview for those characteristics? And then how do you score against those, right? So I just took it and I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to build a model. And then I send it out to all of our, our sales leaders, mm -hmm. right? So I've got everybody on a kind of a Google conversation or Google group just for the, all the sales leaders. And then we're also on our website. If you go to our thoughts section, we're starting to post some of our models up there just for the general public because it's like it's important information that everybody should be using. It's important information. And if, if you give that stuff back, I imagine that the hypothesis is that someone that succeeds while using it may go and start their own company one day and could right. sort of be the next opportunity right. for you well, and your team. And and we feel like, you know, like, look, we, we want to increase the value of all software companies, not just ours, right? Of course, they're our primary focus, but at the end of the day... Like we all this, rise with the tide. Yeah, yeah, we all rise with the tide, right? And um, and we just, it's it's good for everyone. Awesome. Well, Doug, this has been a lot of fun. Um, before we go, two questions for you. One, where can our listeners go to keep up with you and, and the latest from Emergence? And two, this is your last shot if you have that metaphor. Oh, the, the, analogy, <laughs> the analogy for box. Um, 
Okay, look, when it comes to thinking about analogies, the best way to set yourself up is to sit in a room with your sales team and your marketing team and write on a whiteboard your company's name. So let's use Intercom as an example. Intercom is like dot, 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 and leave it and let everybody just brain dump, right? Intercom is like your favorite barista at a coffee shop. You walk in, you have exactly what you want, don't even have to blink to get your coffee, right? So that's a great exercise to come up with analogies for your company is just sit down and write your company name is like dot, 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 and have everybody brainstorm and get creative. Just nothing is wrong, nothing is bad. And then you're going to find a couple that really stick. And that's what's going to help you use analogies to help explain who you are and what you do. If you want to uh, get a hold of me, I'm just Doug at MCAPEMCAP.com. If you go to emergencecapital.com is our website, and you go to the thought section, that's where we're posting a lot of our models, articles on kind of our thesis and what we like to invest in. And then, of course, I always post on LinkedIn every now and again um, some interesting things to noodle over. Cool. We'll, uh, we'll keep our eyes out. Thanks yeah. again for popping in. Awesome. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.